This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Enterprise. Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Sailing frequencies open, and welcome back, everybody, to the next episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. I am your host, Jordan Hoffman, and I am thrilled that you have chosen to spend your car ride, your uh, subway ride, your bus ride, uh, washing the dishes, waiting online to return something at CVS, whatever it is that you're doing and you don't want to do, and you're listening to us via whichever uh, streaming platform you choose here on the Play.it network. And I also want to remind you to uh, like us on Facebook when you get a chance. Like us on Facebook.com slash engage the official Star Trek podcast, all one word, and to tweet at me at, at Jay Hoffman and use the hashtag EngagePod. Did I get all that out of the way? I think I did. And we're just going to jump right to it because we have a special guest with us. Let me... Um, let me, before I do anything, open up a hailing frequency. Open a hailing frequency. Oh, yeah. And we are going to speak to our good friend out there all the way on the West Coast. Let's give a warm round of applause and a couple of uh, phaser fires. That sound represents the fire and fury of Scott Movie Mance out there on the West Coast. Hello, Scott. Hello, Jordan. <laughs> you know, it is such an honor, an honor to be on Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. You know, you and I have known each other for quite a while, but in a film capacity because we've seen each other around at the Sundance Film Festival and at the Toronto Film Festival. And I honestly, you know, we've talked so much about film right. that I had no idea that you were a massive trekker like myself. If I did, I wouldn't have talked to you about film. <laughs> I would have talked to you about Star Trek. We all lead double lives. And I think we bumped into one another at one of the Star Trek conventions in Las Vegas. And it was like, hey, my other life is here. What's going on? And yeah, I remember was... that. I remember that you were you had just been on stage doing a, a panel for the for the comics, yeah. for the IDW comics, and I was like, "Oh, hey, Jordan!" You turned around like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and I was like, "What are you doing here?" And then it just like it all came together, and uh, you know, I was so excited when I when I found out the news that you were going to be the host of the official podcast, you know, engage, and I was so happy for you, and I was like. When is he going to have me on? I mean, <laughs> you know, so that the time is now. Yeah, the time is now. It didn't take too long. It took a few months, but but just uh, 
you know, we didn't make you wait the full year. That's good. <laughs> and so, so people who maybe recognize the voice, Scott Mance, of course, has been the film critic um, at Access Hollywood for quite some time and um, is all, very regularly involved in various film uh, presentations, uh, junkets, press conferences, uh, and sometimes, at least in New York City, if you hop in the back of a taxi cab, and then you start, <laughs> usually you hop in the back of a taxi cab after you're having a lot of drinks with friends, and you go, oh, I gotta get home, and you don't want to take the subway, you go, uh, driver, take me back to Queens, and you get in the car, and then you look up, and it's Scott Mance telling you whether or not to go see Pirates of the Caribbean 6. And it's like, what? Please. And you you got manced. You got manced, Jordan. (laughs) That's what happens. That's what happens because you're one of those guys. There's, There's another guy that does it, too. Uh, they in the, the New York cabs. There's like a range war between you and someone whose name I won't mention. Uh, that is, um, you know, they roll these things in the back of cabs and they have movie reviews in there, quick movie reviews. And sometimes it's the other guy and I say thumbs down. But when it's Mance, I go, all right, we're going to get the straight dope whether or not I want to see this movie. Awesome. I love it, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yes, you are, in addition to being a film critic and uh, film personality, a huge Star Trek fan, and you were telling me that uh, you were a fan since you were a kid, but you there was something specific and odd that kind of dragged you in. And I, I love hearing these stories. I love hearing the Star Trek origin stories because um, everyone's got their own avenue in, their own on-ramp. So tell me what it was for you back when you were a young lad in, I'm guessing, the ninth, mid to late 19-whenevers this was. I'm going to say early 1970s, my friend. I was six years old in 1974, and I grew up in Philadelphia, northeast Philadelphia. And, and me and my friends used to play wiffle ball. You know wiffle ball. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we played it almost every single day, every single night. And I'll never forget one time we were about to play... And it was 7 o'clock p.m. And my friend Mitchell Paul, and I'm going to, I always give him the shout out because he is the one. He was ground zero for my introduction to Star Trek. He sees it at 7 o'clock. He drops the bat, runs into his house, and we're all looking at each other like, what the heck is he doing? So I followed him in. And there he was, right in front of the TV, wide eyed, watching the beginning of a Star Trek episode. And Jordan, I'm going to give you a little hint. Yeah. It was the landing party beaming up to the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. The landing party consisted of Captain Kirk, yeah. Dr. McCoy, Scotty, and Duhora. Name the episode. They're the ep- Oh, if you started with this episode, it's the best episode, but it's not the right episode to start with. Right. You started with Mirror Mirror. That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> I knew you would get this in a heartbeat. Now, obviously, Mirror Mirror is one of the top 10, maybe even top five greatest yeah. original series Star Trek 100%. episodes of all time. But but the thing, Jordan, it's, it's not an atypical episode of Star Trek because- No, it is an atypical. It's not typical. It's, it's atypical. not typical, yeah. yes. I, that was a double, uh, a double negative yes. there. Um, it's, it's not a typical episode because the episode takes place mostly in the Mirror Universe 
the whole time. But the thing that grabbed me was when the landing party beamed aboard the Enterprise, the ISS Enterprise, Ooh. the first thing that struck me was Spock with the goatee. Of course. And I just went, what the heck is going on? Now, Now, at least for the first two acts of that episode, it is really nonstop. It just really flies by. Oh, my God, yeah. Until, until you know, Kirk meets Marlene in his quarters and it slows down a little bit. But that was the episode that really hooked me. Now, in Philadelphia at that time, the beauty was that they were playing the complete uncut full 50-minute episodes. They were not stripped for syndication in Philadelphia. So so now they were also showing it in production order. So they're showing the beginning of the second season, which, as you know, is really when the original series hit its stride. So I'm watching episodes like A Mock Time, Mirror, Mirror, The Doomsday Machine, uh, Who Mourns for Adonis, Trouble with Tribbles, uh, Metamorphosis. And you know these are the episodes that were produced, uh, daily produced by Gene Kuhn, yeah. who was really a, a major, really took Star Trek to another level in the second half of the first season and the first half of the second season. Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 that, and that, I was hooked. It was on every night at 7 o'clock in Philadelphia, and uh, I, I, you know, at, like most people from our generation, Jordan, who got hooked onto Star Trek because of syndication, that was my entry in, and, yeah. and even as they went through the cycle... Over and over and over and over right, again, right, right. I, I, was, I couldn't get enough of Star Trek. And even when they switched the time to 11.30 p.m. at night, which was a little late for me, it was right around the time that I got my first VCR, so I would set the timer. Oh, nice. And then I would go downstairs the next morning and see which episode it was. I watched the teaser, and then I watched the rest of the episode when I got home. I started going to the conventions, you know, in 1979. And listen, you know, you and I probably live very similar lives at that to that extent, just in different cities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because you're right. Mirror, mirror, in a way, isn't the right one because it's a fish out of water story. But mirror, mirror, for me, cemented my love of Star Trek. It really did. And and it's I'm I'm a little bit younger than you are, and not, not significantly, <laughs> but enough uh, 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 enough younger than you that my uh, I've told this on the on the show before, but I'll, I'll give the thumbnail version. My Interest in Star Trek was was so bizarre. I fell in love first with the poster for Star Trek the motion picture when I was very very young and begged my parents to see it and we went and saw it and I fell asleep, which that's okay. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't my fault. It was a very cold day. We've been out all day and I distinctly remember being very warm in the theater and just <laughs> collapsing and falling asleep. <laughs> That'll do it. And then I never saw Wrath of Khan in the theater because <gasps> I know I know I mean I've seen it since in the theater, but I haven't I didn't see it in its original run. The first one I saw in the theater, the first Star Trek I saw from beginning to end was uh, Search for Spock, which, much like you with Mirror Mirror, that's not a place to start. It's no Star way. Trek Three. It's completely weird. But somehow in my young brain, I got it. And what's funniest is that the person who dragged me was my grandfather, who who had a, did not have the best command of the English language. He was a Russian immigrant and a farmer his whole life, and um, you know, dragged I, I dragged him to see. I wanted to see this movie that looked cool. I saw the ad in the paper, and I was into Search for Spock. And then what happened was, then I started simultaneously watching the TOS reruns when Star Trek Four came out, and I saw I Star Trek Four in the theater, and that blew me away. By this point, I had somehow gone back and seen Star Trek Two, or at least understood it somehow. And then I started dabbling. I love Star Trek Four, but like I don't know, I might want to be a full Trekkie because like at this point, like I knew enough to know that Trekkies were 
you know, being a Trekkie was a bit of an investment. And at that time, it wasn't cool. No. It was not oh, cool. It man. was. Jordan. It wasn't cool to read comic books and it wasn't cool to be a Trekkie. It was maybe a little bit cool to like Star Wars. They never were totally stigmatized. So I was watching Trek TOS kind of on the sly, and it would be on late at night, midnight in the New York area on WPIX. And it was one of those things like I, at 12.30, um, first of all, I wasn't supposed to be up this late anyhow. I'm like in fifth and sixth grade. And um, at 12.30 a.m., Letterman would come on, and he was very avant-garde at that time. And if I was going to sneak up to stay late, I would want to stay up late, I would want to watch Letterman, but I would always get uh, kneecapped because I'd start watching an original series episode and just stay with it and never switch the channel over from 11, channel 11 to channel 4. And it was one of these first encounters with the original series. Uh, the first few episodes that really did it for me were Arena. Um, it was uh, Taste of Armageddon. And then I remember, clear as day yesterday, we're talking 1980. It was before TNG, so before 87. After 86, Voyage Home, before TNG 87, sometime in that window, I'm in the guest room because I wasn't allowed to have a television in my bedroom, even though I still stayed up all night watching Star Trek. <laughs> and um, it was the opening teaser to what you just said. They're down there with the Hawkins. They beam up, and uh, there's the ion storm. Yep. And the ship orbiting the planet does that, like, walk, 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 walk. And there's that sound effect. Yep. And instantly, I don't know how I knew it, and it was before you even saw the title Mirror Mirror, I'm like, they're in Bizarro World. They're in Reversal World. I just, that's what's going to happen. And they get up there, and the costumes are different. And I got up off, we had like a Murphy bed um, in the guest room. And I like got up off the bed, and I'm like an 11-year-old dork, like just pacing around like, holy shit, they're in Reversal World. What's going on here? And then they zoom in on Spock with the beard, and I was just like, blah! And then they yeah. cut to commercial, and that was it. That nailed it. And I was forever a Star Trek uh, fanatic at that point. You know, you know the other thing when I was watching in the early seventies that you know that that hook, you know, those the, the first half of the first season is to me Star Trek at its finest. I mean, there were a lot of great episodes in the first season. You know, there were a couple great episodes in the third season. <laughs> a few. There are a few good there ones in the few. third season. I will take half of the third season over no third season. Of course. And, and there are a lot of people who who beg to differ and just hate the third season. But we can we can talk about that too. But the the thing the thing is, Jordan, is that like an episode like the Doomsday Machine. I mean, that's a classic. That's a great episode. One of the very very best. And there were just so many great episodes during that period of time that really hooked me. That even by the time the motion picture came out on, let's see, that was December seventh, nineteen seventy nine. I did like the the motion picture. I didn't love it as much as like Wrath of Khan, which I which I absolutely fell in love with. Yeah. But I thought that you know to see the special effects the way they were. To oh see, yeah. To see the Enterprise just with with the great special effects and the thing that struck me about Star Trek the motion picture, Jordan was the music. Oh yeah. 
The music Absolutely. by Jerry Goldsmith is one of one of the best musical scores that that I can think of, and it's one that I definitely listen to a lot in my car when I go out for a run or whatever. Yeah. But but you know, a lot of people were down on the motion picture because it was boring, and yes, it was a little slow. A little slow. But, I wouldn't call it boring, but it's definitely a little slow. Yeah. You know, they said, oh, the uh, the trip around the Enterprise when Kirk sees the Enterprise for the first time uh, in two and a half years, it, it 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 was too long. I say that scene wasn't long enough. <laughs> I just love that scene, the pieces, and you yeah. know, when the when the Enterprise launches at a space dock and. Beautiful. It's beautiful, and it, it's it's more cerebral. It was not. It was not the uh, the Star Star Trek's answer to Star Wars. It was Star Trek's answer yeah. to 2001. Hey, hey, when did when did uh, the black hole come out? Was that 1980? No, no, no. Okay, I'm glad you asked, Jordan, because yeah. both the black hole and Star Trek: The Motion Picture they have two things in common. <laughs> one one is that they both came out in December of 1979. Oh my god, yeah. And two, you ready for this? Yeah. As a movie person, you'll love this. Both of those movies are the last films until uh, The Hateful Eight with uh, Quentin Tarantino, the last two films to feature an overture before the movie got is started. Is that right? Is that, that is right? correct, sir. Wow. The Black Hole, another yeah. underrated movie, great score by great John sc- Barry. Oh my god, the score, but you know, but, but but also, not what the stu- like the studios greenlit both of those movies because of Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. And what George Lucas, who says a lot of conflicting things in life, but the one thing that he sticks to is his obsession with fast cars and with speed. And even the prequels, which can be boring, still <laughs> yeah. have scenes of incredible speed, and that's what drives him creatively: is vroom, is hyperdrive. And the black hole is has some amazing production design. Yes, it does. But man, oh man, is it slow! Slower even than the motion picture. I, well, <laughs> different kind of slow <laughs> because I'm emotionally engaged in Star Trek: The Motion Picture to, to a degree that I'm not with the black hole. So, what a weird Christmas 1979 for uh, maybe people that were a little older than us that had seen Star Wars in the theater and were hoping. Uh, to get that rush again, and then we're hit with one soporific right after the other. Well, I'm glad you brought up Star Wars, Jordan, because here's the thing. I, I saw Star Wars when it was in theaters. It, it, I remember the weekend it was uh, it was playing at the Eric Baderwood Theater right outside of Northeast Philadelphia. My dad took me. I sat on his lap. And I remember the film vividly, but you know, when you're eight years old and you don't have a whole deep perspective about movies, you can't say it's the greatest movie you've ever seen because at that age, it's yeah. one of the only right. movies you've ever seen. <laughs> And I thought the effects were great, but what I what I it was a great ride. Even back then, I called it a ride. Yeah. But what I loved, what I always felt, and I still to this day, I feel like as much as I love Star Wars, I've always, always, always loved Star Trek more because of the characters, because yeah. of the stories, especially the way the stories were allegories for the times. I mean, I wasn't able to appreciate appreciate it back then, but the way that This Side of Paradise was an allegory for the hippie movement, yeah. the way that Balance of Terror, Errand of Mercy, A Private Little War were allegories for Vietnam, the way uh, 
Uh, I mean, let that be your last battlefield. Sure. Not very subtle. Not very. It's, <laughs> it's, that not one's subtle an allegory for uh, black and white cookies that you sometimes get in delicatessens in exactly, New York City. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but you know, the, this it was always like, you know, listen, I got picked on a lot when I was a kid because I was a big Trekkie and because I loved sci-fi in general and because I read Spider-Man comics ad nauseum. I brought them to school. And you're right. I mean, now in the, in the days of the San Diego Comic Con, I know in the days of all these Marvel movies and the Star Wars films and the Star Trek. Re- it's 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 cool to be a genre fan. I know we fought fan. for this generation. We fought for their right to it's payback time, <laughs> buddy. <laughs> Did you have the uh, Star Trek Concordance when you were young with the spinning wheel on the front page? And uh... I, here's what I had when I was young. You ready for this? Yeah. I had the Concordance by yeah. B. Joe Trimble. Sure. I had the Star Trek Compendium. Oh yeah. By, by and that was the best book, the <laughs> Alan Asherman book. Yeah. I also had the poster books. Yeah. The twelve. There were there were seventeen of them, but my Pride and joy to this day, to this day, Jordan, the rosebud of my Star Trek collection are the Star Trek photo novels. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. See, I have a complex relationship with collectibles. Okay, tell me. Because I don't want them, I don't want to start collecting collectibles because if I start, I'll never stop. Now, (laughs) the problem is, and it's not really a problem, is I've been you know, sort of unofficially associated with the Star Trek brand for a number of years now. I've been writing uh, a column for StarTrek.com. It's sort of on a hiatus right now, but called One Trek Mind. I've been doing stuff with the um, conventions for a number of years. And before that, when I was writing for the geek-friendly site UGO, they just started sending me a lot of things. Uh So I... Got I mean, they, when when other brands would send me stuff like Marvel would send me uh, trinkets for the new Spider-Man movie. I instantly donated it. I either give it to my niece and nephew or I donate it to Goodwill. I don't I don't need that stuff in my house. But with the Star Trek stuff, as I started collecting it, and then I started collecting tons of Star Trek books. I have a lot of them, and I live in New York. I have limited space, and and then when I go to conventions, I say I'm not going to buy something pricey. But I always go to the bargain bins and buy something funny. So, like, <laughs> if I see uh, w- the fi- you know the Playmates figurine of Worf in the cowboy uniform from the holodeck episode, Fistful of Datas. Yeah, Fistful of Datas. Yeah, yep. I'm going to buy that because it's only $3 and it's idiotic. So, I'm going to buy it for sure. Or if it's, you know, um, uh, old man uh, Picard as a farmer from All Good Things... Yeah, all right, I want that too. So I buy the weirdo ones. You know what I have, which is one of my pride and joys? What is it? Is um, Tom Paris as the salamander from the episode Threshold, the most oh, reviled yeah. episode in all of Star Trek. They actually made- They made an action figure? They did, and I have ah. it. And the funniest thing was I found it. It was like gold in a convention, not even like one of the big conventions in Vegas or like they have them in London, in Europe now. It was in- Secaucus, New Jersey, which is a, I don't, I mean, I don't, there's a band from New Jersey in this room right now listening. I don't want to say. <laughs> Secaucus is not, there's a lot of great stuff going on in northern New Jersey. Patterson, New Jersey uh, is, is a lot of interesting culture. Uh, Newark, although it has a lot of crime, is a very interesting city uh, and has great cuisine and, and interesting museums. 
Secaucus is an armpit. It's a toilet. There's nothing going on in Secaucus, <laughs> New Jersey. But for a couple of years, they don't anymore, thank God. Uh, they had a convention in like the, you know, the Holiday Inn in Secaucus. Oh, boy. Um, and I remember going and it was a rainy day and like the carpet was stained and it kind of smelled and everybody was in a bad mood. And I even saw poor, I remember this, Rene Aubergenois was like drinking uh, a Starbucks coffee just like by himself in like the little awful he wasn't even like in a green room he was just sitting there by himself and nobody was talking to him he was sitting there just drinking a coffee so I go to like the bargain bin as I always do at the conventions I'm having a good time and not only do I see Paris's threshold action figure the it, it's in box so the figure itself is mint in box but it was like so damaged and scrunched, like the cardboard is is like folded over, and it just looks like it's been sat on. And it's just like, and I point to him like, oh my god! I'm like, I don't think this dealer realizes how hilarious this thing is. <laughs> I'm like, how much you want for this? He's like, a dollar. And I'm like, a dollar is what it's worth. Tom Paris breaking the dimensional barrier, going beyond warp ten, which is incapable of doing because warp ten means you're everywhere at once, and then coming back, mutating into a salamander mating with Captain Janeway, which is a violation of protocol, by the way, and then leaving behind salamander babies on a planet, and then the two of them never discuss it ever again. My God. My God, Scott Vance, it's terrible. Well, listen, you know, Jordan, the photo novels came out. You know, I started collecting them before VCRs, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, these little books have 300-plus pictures from the original series, and there were 12 of them, you know, and I could tell you what they were. It was City on the Edge of Forever, Where No Man Has Gone Before, Trouble with Triples, A Taste of Armageddon, Metamorphosis. Oh, man. Uh, All Our Yesterdays, The Galileo 7, A Piece of the Action, Devil in the Dark, Day of the Dove, The Deadly Years, and A Mock Time. Those were the 12 photo novels, and they are still in the exact same pristine condition that I bought them in because I've just cherished them so much. Oh, wow. And, you know... Those are hard to find. Those, those, if you go to a convention... Good luck finding them. Yeah. I mean, if you find them on eBay, they're in bad shape. Yeah. But I'm glad you brought up the conventions, because just to give you an idea just to how deep Star Trek runs, for me, and I went to my first convention in 79. It was on my birthday, November 21st, and uh, Walter Koenig was a guest, and so was Stan Lee and David Prowse. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was at the Center Hotel. A Clockwork Hotel. Orange's David Prowse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was a creation convention. Mm-hmm. So for the next like six or seven years, every time Creation had a show in Philly, I would go. And when I when I went away to school and I just sort of got out of the whole Trek thing for a little bit, you know, the first couple seasons of Next Generation, I I didn't really like them very much until season three, then it really hit its stride. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I got out of school, I started, I moved to California to work for Creation and I worked for them from 91 until 2000 and it was and I left creation to go work for Access Hollywood. So so in the last couple of years, you know, the Adam and Gary from Creation, Adam Malin and Gary Berman who found the company said, "Hey, would you want to come to Vegas and get involved with the big shows that we're doing?" I said, "Sure." You know, it's been so long since I worked there and I got to tell you, Jordan, this last convention Oh my god. Best one was yet. the greatest Star Trek convention 
ever on the face of this planet. It was fantastic. The fans were great. They had like 150 guests and and everyone just had the best time. You know, people usually complain, but no one was complaining about that Vegas show uh, in August. It was so, so fun. And, you know, I saw you there. You were doing your podcast from there. That was it was it was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I will say that, you know, there are a lot of there are many Star Trek conventions and some not everybody can afford to go to Vegas, obviously. And this year there was a biggie in New York, which was a little different. It was a New York spin. And the production values, I'm trying to be even handed here, the production values of the New York convention had a a little bit more of a Broadway quality professionalism to it. That's what the New York show had. But the Vegas show has something that you can't put a price tag in on, which is the sense of community, which is not to say that newcomers aren't welcome. In fact, they are incredibly welcome. But there are many people who've been going for years and years and years. And the key thing is this. You go... And you stay in ostensibly the same building for multiple days. Oh, I never the, left. Right. I never left the never, Rio for the, five days. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the weird thing. I remember calling home to my long-suffering wife, and I got there on a... This year it was a Tuesday night, right? Because they yep. they added a day. And it was, uh, you know, it was Saturday already. And I'm like, oh my God, I just realized now I haven't actually been outside. Because the Rio <laughs> is, yeah. is gigantic. <laughs> And it's off the strip, so that means it's a little more isolated. And it's, you know, you got it's one of these Vegas hotels. It's just enormous. So and there's fifteen different restaurants, and the convention center is attached to the hotel casino part by a long, thin corridor. So it kind of feels like a commute, right? If you're staying there, and most people are. You get up in the morning, you put on your finest Star Trek t-shirt, you put on your little Gorn pin, and then you <laughs> go down and for me, because I was hosting panels and one I was quote unquote going to work for the day and uh, and then you go and you walk and then you see people and you take pictures of people ah this person's dressed as the you know the, the Romulan commander oh my god I want a selfie with her and then you go and you do your day and then you come back from the convention area and there's all these bars and people are hanging out and then you, it becomes a thing and you don't realize that you haven't left and you really do I'm not going to say that these are my best friends in the world but there are people that I see every year Sometimes I don't even remember the names. I'm like, hey, it's this guy. I love this guy, and let's <laughs> let's get a light beer together. And it's it's a lot of fun. It really is. So, um, yeah. The and and you were on the main stage for a lot of it this year, um, which is something I want to get to in a minute. Your relationship with with the Kelvin cast because you're kind of uh, you are the interlocutor. Is that the word? Interlocutor. <laughs> really, between uh, the Kelvin cast and and the press at this point. But just going back to photo novels, I want to tell you a funny story. We had on this podcast um, a couple of months ago a guy you probably know, Bilge Ibiri. And Bilge Ibiri is the film critic here in New York. He used to work in New York Magazine. Now he's at the Village Voice. And he was born and raised in Turkey. And uh, he's a huge Star Trek fan. But his gateway to Star Trek was the photo novels. Oh, there you go. And because he was living in Turkey and Star Trek was yet was not over there yet, and he started reading the photo novels before he spoke English. He started wait, he started reading the photo novels before he even saw the show? Yes. That's amazing. Because here's what he was into. He lived in Turkey. He took what he could get. So he was really into Space 1999. Okay, good show. Because that was what was translated into Turkish. And then he was somewhere and he saw a book of something called Star Trek that looked kind of similar to Space 1999. Oh, wow. And he started buying them. And he did not speak English. And then, and, and that was, <laughs> you know, that's like, uh, that's what got him to speak it. That's what convinced him to 
come to Britain and then America and become a film critic. <laughs> I'd is, like to. That is amazing. That, that is, not is true. an amazing I, story. I added the last part it. on. The last part on was phony. He'd kill me if I said that. But <laughs> but it is true that he was reading the photo novels before he spoke English. So, um, but uh, the, now the other funny thing about the photo novels is that they're in a way. They're kind of back. I don't know if you're aware oh, of these. John the, Byrne. Yeah. John. Oh, oh, my God. Jordan. Okay. So I was at a local shop here close to where I work called House of Secrets. And they had their very first of the New Frontiers comics. And it was sort of a sequel uh, to the Where No Man Has Gone Before episode. It was right, Gary right. Mitchell was in it. And so I, I look on the shelf. I pick it up and I'm thumbing through it. And it's basically a comic book size version of a photo novel but with an original story that John Byrne just like in his head pulled <laughs> images from the original series. He knew which images to pull to fit the story. And I'm looking at it. My jaw hit the floor. I was a little kid again, <laughs> you know, picking up that photo novel, the yeah. piece of the action off the shelf. And I just went, oh, my God, I, I could not believe it. And I love these photo montages, the photo stories that he is doing, I mean, I have not missed any issue. I think they're up to like 12 or 13. They're, they're, if you count the specials, I yeah, think they're the up special. to 13 now. It is great. It's they're very so unique. great. It's, the, it's a very niche thing. And I was looking at one once, and a friend of mine who is geek-friendly, he's not one of these snobs, he looked at it, and he's like, that is some nerd-ass shit. What is going on with that? <laughs> what they are, for people who maybe don't know, first of all, John Byrne is one of the five most important living comic book artists. A legend. A legend. Absolutely. I mean, Superman, Man of Steel. Um, Fantastic Four. Fa sure. I mean, really created the modern Fantastic Four. Uh, he worked on, you name it, he worked on it. DC, Marvel, and then... Uh, his own stuff. You've read John Byrne's Next Men. Have you oh, read sure. that one? Yep. Better than the X Men are the Next Men. Say <laughs> I. It's an incredible book. And anyway, he's an older gent, and he's he's certainly he's sort of an interesting figure with some uh, occasionally uh, um, problematic views on topical issues. But he's a great uh, writer and also an illustrator, which is an, you know a rarity uh, to have somebody who does both. Um, and anyhow, uh, he. Um, uh, was his lifelong dream was to do Star Trek comics. And he wow. started doing with IDW stuff that he was illustrating and he did a whole Romulan arc and he did something based on uh, the character number one uh, from The Cage, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, you know, Major Barrett's character. Sure, sure. Uh, did, did a whole like mini series based on her called Crew, which was really cool. And, you know, he's getting older and he's, he doesn't want to draw anymore. But he wants to continue making Star Star Trek stories, so he's like, "I got this idea. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna write a story, and then instead of drawing it, I know what I want it to look like. I know the background. I, if, it, if it's set on the bridge, I know the angle, and if it's a look on the face of Doctor McCoy, I know where to find that face. That's because he he has he's like us. He's seen the original <laughs> series so many times yeah, yeah. that if if there's a moment on the bridge where there's a you know they're under attack or something, they he, can pull an image from let's say the Changeling when right. Nomad was attacking, and he can just <laughs> grab it from whatever means, whether it's a high res Blu-ray or whatever. He takes it and then he photoshops it. It's amazing, and it is a very unique. Is not for everybody, but it's 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 so strange. And it's and and it is uh, monthly still. IDW puts it out monthly uh, along with their other really cool things. So the photo novels are back to yeah. it, but in weirder John Byrne form. Now so. I got to ask you, Jordan. Sounds like is your wife a Star Trek widow? 
No, no, mine she's not. Is. <laughs> mine definitely is. <laughs> no, it, we, we very. She, my wife, does not care, and it kills me. She does not care for Voyager. She does not like. She just doesn't like Captain Janeway. But what's weird is that she likes um, uh, Orange is the New Black, which, oh. and she oh. loves Red. I'm like, why do you like her on that show? She's like, I don't like Captain Janeway. She drives me crazy. So she, <laughs> when I met her, when I met her, she was really into the original. Let me reel that back. She liked the original series a lot. She, she knew most of the shows. She wouldn't know the titles like we do. She would say, oh, the one where... The woman's pregnant and they're walking up a cliff and only Dr. McCoy is allowed Friday's to hold her child. hand. Yep. Right. That's what she would do it. Uh, so she she liked the shows a lot. She thinks Spock is fun. She thinks Dr. McCoy is fun. Uh, she probably thinks Captain Kirk is handsome and who doesn't? So she dug the original series but had not seen anything after that. Right. Nor had she really seen any of the movies. Like, I... like. It, it was only very recently that she saw Wrath of Khan because I just assumed she had and she'd never seen it. She knew about it, but she'd never seen it. She'd seen Space Seed. Again, she didn't know it was called Space Seed, but she would watch, I guess, after school when she was growing up. She'd watched TOS and dug it. Since then, I have sort of gotten her into TNG to a degree. Uh-huh. She likes it. She thinks Worf is funny. And uh, she doesn't, certainly doesn't like you know the early episode, the early seasons. I'm like, well, you got to... You know, it's a uh, it's a different mentality to like that very earnest uh, season one, season two of Next Generation. Um, yeah, she, season one and two of Next Gen. I just, I mean, there's some good episodes here and there, but yeah, but boy, did three season three season just changed three. everything. Once Tin Man hit, it was all over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then, uh, and but Deep Space Nine, uh, she's seen bits and pieces of she every time she would see it over my shoulder. Uh, I, I would be convinced that she would really like Quark, and she's like, "Ugh, his teeth are gross. I can't watch it." So she hasn't really seen that much uh, Deep Space Nine. But she, what's funny is that she has seen a lot of Voyager. I think she secretly does like Voyager, just pretends she doesn't like uh, Janeway. I don't know, and she's never seen any of Enterprise. So she's not she's not a um, a widow. But let's put it this way: when there are conventions and she's invited to come along. She she chooses not to come. Okay, that's where our <laughs> wives differ, uh, or, or our wives are similar. Like right. for example, when I when I was telling my wife Andrea about the Vegas show, the one in uh, you know this past August, she says, you know, I, I thought that she'd want to go, you know, go to Vegas. Yeah. She literally said, she literally Jordan literally said to me, go be with your people. <laughs> Well, that's now, very nice. Now, now here's and this is an actual excerpt from the conversation we had on our very first date. Are you ready? I'm ready. It went, it went like this. So, you're a Trekkie, and I went. Actually, we like to be called Trekkers, but <laughs> but yes. And she goes, she goes, and, and I was like having the greatest time with her, and I went, oh oh shit, I'm in big trouble now. It's all over. So she goes, she goes, oh so do you wear the uniform? And I went. Only on Halloween. <laughs> so she goes, okay. So so you know we get into we start dating and everything. And I and I showed her like the staples. I showed her City on the Edge of Forever. I showed her Doomsday Machine. Uh, I showed her Tomorrow's Yesterday just because I think it's a fun light lighthearted episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you know she dug it. Not didn't turn into a fan. But I'll tell you what she loved. You know what she loved were the three Kelvin Timeline reboot movies. Oh she wow, loved those movies because uh, they were just great films yeah in addition to being great Star Trek movies even the into darkness 
which is obviously a fan, uh, a movie that the fans don't like, but yeah. general moviegoers like because it's a good action film. Yeah. She liked that one as well, and she loved Beyond, yeah. which I was happy about because of the three films. I remember I saw your tweet after your screening, and you said it was like a love letter to the original series. Yeah. And I felt the exact same way. Yeah. You know, when you have the big reveal about who Crawl really is, how many times in the original series in TOS did a starship captain sort of lose his mind? And <laughs> quite a few times, yeah. Quite a few times. I mean, you know, look at the Captain Ron Tracy from the Exeter and, and uh, the Omega, you know, mm-hmm, Omega mm-hmm. Gory. That was an episode that, that, like a few episodes from TOS, felt like a throwback. And that's why Beyond felt like a throwback. And, uh, you know, I just loved the third movie. I mean, I, I was disappointed that it didn't do as well as the 2009 movie or Into Darkness. But yeah, yeah. I just think, I think part of that is just because. You know, the, the, the other two films came out in May and people were hungry for the summer movies. And I'm sure you'll agree with me as a critic, Jordan, that this past summer Oof. was awful. Oof. It was the it worst. It was awful. It was the worst. So, so you have bad sequels and you have bad reboots. And by the end of July, when people are sort of done with the Hollywood movies anyway, yeah. you have a sequel to a reboot. People were people were disinterested. And people had I, – I, I had arguments with people like – on Facebook, oh, I hear the next one's good. I'll see it when it's streaming. I'm like, you fool. You yes. fool. When you see it, you'll wish you'd seen it in a theater. Exactly. Uh, I totally you know, agree. It, 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 and, 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 you know, the, the you know blockbusters are changing. The marketplace is changing. It's a difficult time for, for these types of movies. If I ran Paramount, what I would do is simply say, look, we know what a Star Trek movie is makes we shouldn't expect them to be runaway blockbusters like star wars or the marvel films you know maybe we'll roll the dice and we'll get lucky but we should expect numbers like this and we should diminish the budget because guess what they diminished the budget for wrath of khan and that was the best star trek movie of all ever it was the citizen kane of star trek right so i think what they should do is just say let's not go for you know a huge movie let's go for a modest film because it isn't although the scenes of the yorktown in beyond are marvelous you know, we don't necessarily need that many special effects sequences to make a good Star Trek movie. It's the characters I completely people agree. like. It's listen. What I loved about Beyond was the character. Was yeah. the you know they're they're into darkness. Try to they try to go bigger than the 2009 movie, yeah. and on a on a spectacle scale. They did, but it, it robbed the film of the character and the magic that made the 2009 movie so oh, great. Yeah. You, you know, something that I did, which was very informative to me, was lucky in New York, The right was Beyond came out. They probably did in L.A. too. Um, they they did an IMAX screening of all three, back to back. Oh, yeah. Um, and if you watch, so I, I watched the first one and the second one back to back for the first time really ever. I never watched them in one sitting like that. And I noticed a few things. Number one, because I've been pretty down on, on, on Into Darkness for a while, but I noticed as an action film, it's pretty spectacular. It's yep. propulsive. J.J. Abrams knows where to put the camera. It's exciting, and there's good humor in there. But it really is a cynical retread of the script of the first one. The action beats are mirror it almost to a ludicrous degree, and it just takes the characters in, in a way that just doesn't feel right and the course correction they made with beyond was just is just perfect it's like okay. oh this is what we should have done 
instead of the last time. So I, yeah. I love the third one so much, and I really do hope that they make a fourth one. I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen because the, the third one, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a bomb. It wasn't like when they list the biggest boondoggles in Hollywood. It's not like one of those, but it was not, you know, what its profit margins were. Nobody really knows. Well, well, here, here's the thing. So first of all, I agree with you about Beyond. And I remember when I was watching Beyond for the first time, the scene between Kirk and McCoy in the beginning of the film, when they get all philosophical, I mean, that immediately struck me as a throwback to Balance of Terror, when uh, Kirk is uh, in his quarters and McCoy walks in and, you know, Kirk is going, I wish I went on a long sea voyage somewhere, right. you know, right. not too much deck tennis, no responsibilities, why me? Yeah. And, and the stuff with Spock and McCoy, you know, on the planet, whether where they're sort of separate, I mean, it's made me think of like bread and circuses when they're in the jail cell and they're mm-hmm. arguing mm-hmm. or or in, uh, in uh, let's say, a Gamesters of Triskelion when Spock is taking the Enterprise across the galaxy. Right. Just or, just, the or just any little moment between exactly. the two of them. The, the end of Journey to Babel, the little, you shut up, you shut up. Like that whole- Yeah, uh, that whole the last word. That yeah. whole friendship that we that we loved so much just, just finally had a little room to grow in these new movies. And, st- and Paramount, I was at an event uh, this past week on the lot. They were previewing their upcoming slate. And, and afterwards, you know, they just had a little reception. I was talking to the VP of publicity there. And I said, be honest, are you, are you moving forward with the fourth film? Because J.J. was talking about, yeah. about uh, having Chris Hemsworth return as uh, George Kirk. Which I, you know, I think you and I can sort of speculate how that could actually happen. It'd be amazing yeah. because you know I think that the way they're going to do that goes back to how this conversation started on the show. Engage by setting setting the the fourth Kelvin Star Trek movie in the mirror universe. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. I mean, because they can't do another time travel episode. George Kirk died in the two thousand nine. Right. Movie. They can't. They could, but or he didn't die. He went into some sort of vertex, and now but he pops out. You but know. that's Star Trek. Generation, so oh, right. so <laughs> think about think about how great it would be. Like like there, the, the, so far the Kelvin timeline has been the sort of bizarro doppelganger yeah. of the original series timeline. So that this is the way you finally introduce the mirror universe to the Kelvin timeline. That would work. And anyway, you know, I digressed a bit. Right. So what did the what did the person say? She said, "We are moving forward. It's happening." Yeah. So, so I think that you know, from 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 the gist of the conversation, they they sort of know knew that they sort of set things off on the wrong foot with Beyond because that first teaser that dropped in December with Star Wars: The Force Awakens did not sell that movie as a Star Trek film. No, and people were down on it. And by the time you had more materials come out at the end of May, it was kind of too late. And then finally, uh, it it you know you have. Uh, uh, the movie opening in at the end of July instead of the beginning of May when people were hungry for it. So there were a lot of things that they sort of went wrong with with sort of making that movie accessible. But everyone who's seen it, you, me, uh, our friends, other other critics, and just just general moviegoers do love Star Trek Beyond as they should because it's a great Star Trek movie yeah, yeah. and it's a great movie. Period. Well, that would be great. And and you know what. If if Paramount can just be reasonable and know what profit margins they should expect, then just make the movie that hits that mark, and maybe yep. they'll get lucky and exceed that. But if they don't, okay, because look, it's at this point, it's these actors that are so great. I mean, Chris Pine is just so great as Kirk now. I and, think he's awesome. And, yeah. and and Quinto and and you know, it's obviously heartbreaking about Anton Yelchin because yeah. I, I think that he's a really 
clutch player, but I love um, Sophia, what's her name, as Jayla. Sophia I would tell her. Yep. would love to have her back. She's um, could be great, and she works well with uh, with Scotty. And so long as Keenzer <laughs> is there, what do you think about Keenzer? Where are you on Keenzer, Scott Mance? Keenzer, you know, Keenzer, <laughs> Keenzer, I'm in. I like Keenzer. I mean, who doesn't love Keenzer? Why is everybody down on Keenzer? I like Keenzer. Uh, I do too. I like him too. I think he's funny and he's um, funny. He's funny. Great. Re- <laughs> he's the Kuleshov effect, right? From film school. It's the totally. you, cut, you cut to you, you cut to something blank and you don't know and, and you get a laugh. You know, so absolutely. Uh, Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. So listen, um, uh, we've been yapping about a lot of topics, but one thing that I wanted to bring up with you is, uh, so you and I both came to Star Trek when we were very young. We are now both old men. (laughs) (laughs) Old, weary men with long-suffering wives who don't understand our obsession. Oh my God. (laughs) As we've gotten older and allegedly mature, um, what Allegedly. Allegedly, right. What have been some episodes... Or maybe not even episodes, just themes or characters in Star Trek that resonate with you now that didn't necessarily jump out at you, you know, decades ago. Back in the day. Well, that's a great question because what happened was when I was uh, just went through my phase one of being a major Trekkie, I, I sort of like got out of it for a little bit when I when I got consumed with the the uh, the collegiate life. And uh, I, I really felt like I was brought back into the fold back in, I guess it was 99 or 2000, when the Star Trek DVDs came out. The first, you know, the first ones where there were just like two episodes per DVD, and I bought all 40 volumes like an idiot. Oh my God. But yeah, and now then the box sets came out. I was like, well, isn't that just the, the greatest? And yeah. then the Blu-rays with the remastered <laughs> effects. But, but Jordan, what, what, I, what, what it did was because... You know, when I was watching Star Trek as a kid and I was tape recording it or or videotaping it on UHF, the quality was terrible and the DVDs were were razor sharp and it and I re I got back into it and there were definitely episodes that I loved then and I still love now, like Mirror Mirror, Doomsday, City on the Edge of Forever, of course. But the perspective as a grown up, A as a grown up, and Jordan B as a critic, someone who analyzes film and some TV, I was thrown, thrown when I rewatched The Conscience of the King. Uh huh. That is an episode that when I was a kid, boring as sin. I, you know, there's really no action in it except for the scene where the phaser almost goes off in Kirk's quarters. Right. And then the big ending is a little bit of a shootout. But the brilliance of that episode, written by Barry Trivers and directed by Gerd Oswald, is that it, it is a Shakespearean tragedy unto itself. Uh, the, the, uh, in that episode, Kirk is Hamlet, 
And it is just remarkable how much of a mirror to Shakespeare that episode really is. And Barbara, is it Barbara Anderson who plays Lenore Caridian? Mm, that sounds about right to me. If it's not her, we'll apologize to her later. But her performance in that episode, you know, yeah. she starts off the episode, she's really lovely, she's very pretty and, and sexy, and she, you know, she's definitely uh, fallen for, for James T. Kirk. Sure. And then in the middle of the episode, she is a woman scorned when she realizes that she is being used by Kirk to get to her father, who mm-hmm. may or may not be Kodos the Executioner. Right. And then the last like 10 minutes when she is bonkers crazy. I mean, this is an exceptional performance in that episode. And just the music by Joseph Mullendore is, is exquisite and beautiful. His only score that he recorded for the original series, it was reused a million times yeah. uh, in, in other episodes as incidental, as incidental music. But, you know, Shatner's acting in that episode is right on point. The scene in, yeah. in, uh, in uh, uh, Caridian's Quarters when he's confronting, are you Kodos? And they're having that whole exchange, and you know, and and Caridian says, you know, I was younger, much younger, and Kirk goes, so was I, but I remember. Mm. And you know, it says two actors at the top of their game. Yeah, there really is good performances in that one, particularly from from the woman. Um, and, and and the the other thing about that one is it's one of the first episodes to really flesh out sort of the wider world of of the time of not just the federation but like other planets and colonies and there are there are you know stray references i mean even in the man trap you know wrigley's pleasure planet all you hear those three words and it, <laughs> yeah. you, you can think all you want on that but with this it's like no they explained there was a planet and there was a colony and then there was a disaster and they didn't have the time to get there and save them so they had to take action and there are people still surviving but the other thing, that. Jordan. The other thing, Jordan, is this. You know, another thing that was lost on me as a kid that I definitely picked up on round on phase two of my uh, my trekkiness was when Spock is 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 talking to McCoy in the corridors of the Enterprise, and he's like calling calling Kirk out on his actions, wanting to bring this company of players aboard the Enterprise, and he's telling McCoy about the coincidence that people, the people who who witnessed uh, Kodos had died while the Caridian Company of Players were close by. And when he's telling McCoy about Kodos, he goes, and I quote, Spock says, apparently he had his own theory of eugenics. Yeah. And McCoy's response is, unfortunately, he wasn't the first. Right. This is, Jordan, this is 21 years right. after the Holocaust. And they are addressing addressing it in a subtle way in a Star Trek episode. Yeah. yeah. I thought no, that was brilliant. It it a hundred percent is um you know, that's that's what the uh that's what that episode is about on a yep. very molecular level, you know, and it must have meant a lot to 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 Shatner and Nimoy, who both are Jewish and um you know, uh I don't know if the writer is, but that's that's definitely what, what the show is uh is about, but it doesn't. It's one of those things. It doesn't hit you on the head. You know, let that be your last battlefield. Is a story about racism, and it's <laughs> it's on the face of it, literally. You know, it's he's on got the, the nose. He's got yeah. the half white face, the half black face. But this is uh, this is much more subtle. And um, you know, another thing, get, getting back to sort of like fleshing out the world, is you get to really see, and for its time, it was remarkable, something that we do every day, which is. Um, Basically, Kirk accesses Wikipedia for a second. Yep. You know, he needs data, not data the character. He needs data on the the Caridian players now. He needs to do some quick Googling. 
and he gets the info and and you know the computer starts speaking it out and he's like no no forget that aspect I want to you know he he kind of deep links into something else to learn about the dates and whatnot and that sort of access to information yeah. was science fiction literally you know was science fiction back then and now it's just commonplace so a kid seeing that now wouldn't think twice like of course he's going to consult a computer to find out but you know another another episode that that I absolutely fell in love with on round 2 an episode that I, you know, I, I didn't dislike it. I didn't love it. I was a sort of like a, a buffer between one super great early second season episode to the next, but is now my number one personal favorite Star Trek episode of all time. Oh my god, Jordan! It is Metamorphosis. Yeah, so that is um, interesting because I wouldn't put that <laughs> as my number one. Uh, most people would not, but the reason Jordan I did is because, well, for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it was written very fast, I might add, if you read the, if you trust the source material about the production of the original series, very quickly by Gene Kuhn. Mm. And it is a, it is a quintessential Gene Kuhn story in which humanity is forced to take a look at itself and reevaluate its own perceptions. And what I like to say about Metamorphosis is this. If you take The Devil in the Dark, one of the greatest episodes of the original series, also an episode in which which was written by Gene Kuhn. If you take the devil in the dark and turn it into a love story, <laughs> the answer is metamorphosis. I guess I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Because it you know, the episode starts both episodes start off, they don't know what this thing is, it, it it's not familiar to them, it poses a threat, they have to kill it. In Devil in the Dark, once they realize that the Horda is a mother protecting its young, it, it flips the episode over. Well, in Metamorphosis, when it becomes obvious, when they use the universal translator, that the companion, this energy force, is a female in love with the man, Zeph Cochran, it is, it is a... It flips the episode over. It turns. It goes from being sort of a uh, an intense drama mm-hmm. to a beautifully told love story about tolerance. And also, here's the other thing. So, so uh, uh, Eleanor Donahue plays a commissioner, Nancy Hedford. She is on her way to stop a war on Epsilon Canaris Three. She is a, a a Federation ambassador. This is 1967. She's basically Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And this was 1967, and yeah. Eleanor Donahue, who is best known at the time for just being the the uh, the daughter on Father Knows Best, she too gave a fantastic performance, being very stoic and sort of uh, rigid as Commissioner Hedford, to being extremely vulnerable while she realizes, you know, that that she's dying, to being absolutely lovely when the companion takes over her body and right. it is a, just like just like a barbara anderson in conscience of the king uh it, it is a it is a brilliant beautiful beautiful arc played out over 50 minutes the cinematography in that episode in in metamorphosis by jerry finnerman the lighting is beautiful yeah the, the, and there's not there's not it's mostly like sort of that pink purple exterior and then like yeah. a little house right yep. i mean there's the, not a lot uh and then the musical score by george duning is one of one of the one of the most delicate and and sensitive scores and the episode metamorphosis it was directed by ralph sinensky who had he'd done like five or six episodes from the original series but if you look at the episodes <laughs> he did they were always episodes that were sensitive and delicate. This side of paradise, metamorphosis, t- 
Tomorrow is Yesterday, Is There in Truth No Beauty, uh, Bread Circuses, uh, to the, the, the end of that of that episode is very like, wow. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they always went to him when they had an episode that dealt with a very delicate, sensitive subject matter. And that was and, something that they would do, late, you know, at the, the er, beginning of the, of the production run, they, they would go to directors more randomly. It was like, who's up next? But yeah, by this point, yeah. they... Uh, they had more of a of a of a stable. Um, well, you know, I'm going to watch Metamorphosis again. I don't dislike Metamorphosis, but it's one of those ones that that maybe could use a second look from me. Trust me. Um, no, I I do. And you know, it's funny. You mentioned the lighting and the cinematography, and you know, they did shoot Star Trek on 35 millimeter. They had a a, a well respected cinematographer, Jerry um, Finnerman. Finnerman, and um, I'm assuming. In fact, I'm 99 positive that you've seen. Adam Nimoy's uh, documentary for the love oh, of Spock, sure. right? Yes, I thought it was great. And I, one of the uh, best things about seeing it in the theater, and it's still playing at festivals, is seeing excerpts in high definition uh, projected on a big screen. Oh yeah, you're right. Because I didn't even think about that. You're right. Now, you know it that it still holds up. I mean, the some of there was a little stretch when they were doing those fathom events and they were showing the TNG episodes on a big screen and some of it was like, "Oh yeah, this is television on a big screen." Okay. Yeah. yeah. But uh not not so with these with TOS. So, I've said this before, um, you know, For the Love of Spock will eventually come out on Blu-ray and it'll be streaming and it'll be on uh, you know, every Star Trek fan should see it. But if you have an opportunity to see it in the theater, it's it might very well be your only opportunity to see clips of, you know, TOS yeah, they, in the theater. And it, man, does it have a punch. It's it's just amazing. OK, uh, that's one, one more thing I just wanted to mention about Metamorphosis is, you know, listen, Chatner is, uh, has sort of been parodied over the years for his uh, his accentuated you know, pauses and, you know, dramatic performances. But yeah. I always tell people that if you watch the first two seasons of the original series, you realize just how right on point Shatner was with his performance. You know, when you watch Sitting on the Edge of Forever, The Enemy Within, Conscience of the King, and especially Metamorphosis, when Kirk is using the translator to reason with the companion why they should let the man go, and he's saying, you, you must let him go. He will cease to exist. We will all cease to exist. You cannot love him. You will always be different from him. Shatner, in that episode, in Metamorphosis, again, is right on point. A lot of people have different reasons for why they became a Star Trek fan, whether it was the stories, the special effects, it was science fiction. For me, I became a Star Trek fan because of the characters and specifically because of William Shatner's performance as Kirk. He was a great role model then. He still is now. I remember one time I went out on a date with this girl, um, you know, right before I met my wife, and I was just trying to charm her, and I said to her, worlds may change, galaxies disintegrate, <laughs> but a woman always remains a woman. And she thought that was the greatest thing she'd ever heard, and no way did I tell her that I was quoting Star Trek. <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, yeah, you know, I I think as a kid I was more of a fascinated with Spock. 
Um, not because I just, you know, I just thought he was such a gas man. I just thought he was great. He <laughs> was really in them. And then, and then my goofier side was into Bones too. But it's the it's the it's the three of them. It's the Troika. It's the, yep. it's, it's the three of them working together. Uh, I just some episodes that meant more to me on the second pass, and I'm embarrassed by both of them because they're widely considered masterpieces. Uh, the first one is, and I didn't dislike it. I want to make that clear. Um, TNG Darmok. Oh, okay. When I saw it, I'm like, oh, cool episode. Okay, what's in the fridge? Like, it didn't, It <laughs> I didn't realize that I had just seen one of the most brilliant things I'd ever seen. Now I am well aware that Darmok is one of the top ten episodes across all the series. Agreed. And it works in ways, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the best television episodes ever. It's brilliant and it's so clever. And uh, I don't know what, 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 whatever it was that was occupying the front part of my brain when I first saw it. it probably some girl that if <laughs> I thinking about her and why she wouldn't return my phone call, whatever it was, Darmok didn't hit me until much, much later. And then the other one um, was Corbomite Maneuver, which I, I thought was great, but you know, it, it is a little bit of a. Um, you know, it's a bottle episode until the very end, and it didn't seem as expansive to me. Well, as you know, they're mostly on the ship, so it didn't have. Um, I didn't realize that in its uh, restraint there was perfection, and every moment in that episode is just just really tweaked for maximum tension. Uh, and it's shot so well. The director yes. of that was Joseph Sargent. That's right. And he he's best known as a, I mean, he's done so much TV, yeah. but he also did the 1974 feature film, The Taking of Pelham 123. Which is a 70s masterpiece that yep. Quentin Tarantino has based his whole career off of. <laughs> yeah, that's and, true. And uh, <laughs> uh, the American side of his whole career. Forget all the Japanese stuff he's influenced by. But I mean, that, that he is that guy. And he, he, that movie. And this episode has um, like a bare knuckle quality to it. You know, it's really tense. There's moving camera, that first shot of Kirk coming off the turbo lift. That's and, a great shot. Yeah. Yep. It's really unique. And um, as Leonard Nimoy talks about, it was the moment where he got the character of Spock after two tries because he'd already done the cage and he'd already done Where No Man Has Gone Before. But he got it when they first see Baylock's ship. And everybody's freaking out, and he just goes, fascinating. And he, wait, and that, wait, wait, he just goes, fascinating. You know, and that's all he needs to do. <laughs> I love it. And, uh, but, but it really is a masterclass in writing and tension. And, um, and then, and then you get Rance Howard at the end, uh, Clint, Clint Howard at the end as a, as a little cherry on top. You know, you, you can't beat it. And the for what the Corbin maneuver is, <clears throat> is the quintessential. Star Trek episode. It was the first episode that they filmed in May of 1966 when the show went to regular series. Yeah. And if you were stuck on a deserted island with someone else and you were trying to describe Star Trek and you showed that person this episode on a DVD player that had a lot of power to it, <laughs> uh, they would get it because this episode, had this episode been the first to air instead of The Man Trap, yeah. uh, but this was held back until it's the 10th episode to air because of uh, all the special effects. Correct. Yeah. You know, it aired on, uh, I think it was November 10th, 66. But Jordan, 
it, it sets up what Star Trek is all about. Like, uh, the mission of the Enterprise is to seek out and contact alien life. So Kirk establishes the mission of the Enterprise right there, and in the same beat, in that same scene, at the same time, it also establishes the relationship between Kirk and Spock. When Spock says, have you ever noticed a certain inefficiency in constantly asking me about things you've already made up your mind about? <laughs> and Kirk smiles. He goes, it gives me emotional security. Right. <laughs> it's such a great moment. And then, you know, you've got the, you know, uh, McCoy calling Kirk out for promoting Bailey too fast. And as Bailey, I mean, my gosh, uh, 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 the actor uh, Anthony Call, yeah. when he has that breakdown scene on the Enterprise Bridge, and he goes, what are you, robots? What right. are toys sold? It's a great scene. It's terrific. And then and then they finally meet the bad guy and they do a cultural exchange. I mean, you know, oh, it's great. Ba- ba- you know, Balok, was he kidding? Was he ever going to blow him up? You don't know, but you may want to and then when you realize he's a kid, you may want to smack the shit out of him. You know, you know, you put us through the <laughs> ringer, boy. Yeah, you're right. You're but right. But that's not the even though Kirk is a little bit more uh pugnacious than say Captain Picard, he still doesn't do that. He's like, no, we're about cultural exchange, and I'm going to give Bailey an opportunity to redeem himself, because he was and, being a jerk 25 minutes ago, and he's going to be the guy to be the Camelot-era diplomat and exchange and, and stay on the Theseus, uh, Viserius and, and live out a and, wonderful future. And look at the bluff. Okay, that moment on the bridge when they're going back and forth, you know, handling frequencies open to the Viserys with Balok, and then Kirk just has that moment, the epiphany. He goes, not chess, Mr. Spock, poker. Right. <laughs> you know the game? And he pulls the Corbomite bluff, which he actually did again at the end of the second season episode, The Deadly Years. So yes, there was a, that is a correct. rare bit of continuity in the original series. They yeah. never really did that, maybe once in a while. A few times. We, it's one of my favorite things to bring up, but a few times they do they do some of that. We, we should we should do like a list. That should be the next episode that we do, is, is find, searching out all of the rare instances of TOS continuity, because like, I, it, like remember by any other name right. when uh, when he goes, uh, so when oh, I was yeah, there's mention. an energy battery at the end of your galaxy, and Kirk goes, yes, I know, we've been there. <laughs> the way Shatner and we, I just we just talked about that on the last episode too. It's so funny that the way Shatner throws that line away. Yeah, I know we've been there. It's like, shut up, buddy. Go the hell back to the Andromeda Galaxy. I know about your barrier. Uh, it's terrific. It's a great. That's a great example of of William Shatner, the comedian, coming through uh, on Star Trek because he he doesn't always get the funny lines. That's more you know, of a when McCoy you're watching thing. when you are watching the original series when you're watching the first half of the original series, you can see how Leonard Nimoy is still trying to figure out how to play Spock. He's a little. You know, he's kind of a wise ass in the enemy within, and and even in in uh, the 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 naked time, take dark dang, take dark tang in here to sick bay. <laughs> um, you know, he 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 cracks a little bit of jokes. Uh, you know, the, the imposter had some uh, good qualities, wouldn't you say, Yeoman, at the end of the enemy within? Mm-hmm. But the brilliance of the early episodes of the original series, when you watch Act One, Scene One, of where no man has gone before in the rec room when they are playing chess, it is remarkable, it is astounding how much William Shatner had Kirk down. Absolutely. 
I mean, he just had the character down. 100%. He had it down, and no disrespect to, to Jeffrey Hunter, but that's the captain we needed. He was yep. perfect from the get-go. And, um, yeah, uh, Nimoy's delivery of, ah, yes, one of your Earth emotions. And he's smiling. Not an easy line to deliver. He does the best he can, but Kirk Kirk responds well, you know? it's yes. uh, What's your favorite uh, Spock Gag, your favorite Spock joke? My favorite Spock joke. Your favorite moment of levity from the man who allegedly has no humor, no no emotions? Oh, wow. That's an excellent question. Um, my favorite <clears throat> moment of levity with the... Oh, oh, okay, here it is. I got it. I got it. Are you ready? I am. Okay, in the Changeling. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm going to get at? Okay, at the end of the Changeling, you know, after they've destroyed Nomad... You know, Kirk is in his chair, Spock is standing by him, and he goes, fascinating, Captain, uh, a dazzling display of logic. And Kirk just smiles and goes, you didn't think I had it in me, did you, Spock? And he just goes, no, sir. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, I, I have two, because they're okay, real. The first one is just, the, the first one is just like vaudeville stupidity. It's um, in The Conscience of the King. When he needs to give somebody the nerve pinch and knock him out, and he just goes up to this guy, and the 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 people from Minyar Seven have these ridiculous outfits with these silly hats, and he oh, goes, a "Taste of Armageddon, yeah." yeah taste, and he goes, um, <laughs> "Excuse me, sir, there is a multi-legged creature crawling up your <laughs> up arm,", your arm. <laughs> and then he zaps him and he falls down. So that, but that's silliness that anybody can buy. Then there's a moment that I don't really know if it was meant to be played for laughs but i certainly think so and the 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 producers of futurama did too because they parodied it (laughs) um but it's at the end of this side of paradise when the uh, the the woman whose name i believe was layla right layla right layla columbia layla is getting back on the transporter uh and she's leaving and uh, he, she says something to the tune of Spock, do, do you have a first name? And it's like a touching moment. They should oh. be sobbing in the rain. It's like, they're, they, it should be a, and the music is up and there's like a flute playing and it should be really sad. And he says, yes. Do you have a first name? He goes, yes, but you couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> it is both, it is, that is such a tender Is that supposed moment. to be funny though? I don't it's, think it is, but it's, it's not. such a, it's such it's a not, goofy no. line. Because later Futurama parried it by saying it, how, what is your real name, Morto? Uh, you know, he was the newscaster, the space newscaster. He goes, to properly pronounce it, I must tear out your tongue. So, I mean, listen, the other, I don't know if it's a funny moment, but it's certainly one of the best moments of the original series is at the end of a mock time when uh, McCoy or, you know, uh, uh, Spock is telling McCoy he's going to, you know, uh, turn himself in. Yeah. Yeah. Turn himself in. And he goes, don't you think you better check with me first? Right. He goes, Captain Jim. Yeah, he's, and he's uh, so a, happy. Yeah, oh, it's terrific. so great. It's terrific. Yeah. Well, listen, on that happy note, um, we've been yapping for well over an hour. So, Scott, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. Oh, Jordan. Thank uh, you for having this me. Was this was a lot of fun. A I definitely want to have you back on, especially as we get closer eventually to more information about Star Trek Discovery. Oh, yeah. And when we start seeing those episodes, we're going to have a a whole new chapter to talk about with Star Trek. 
but until then, I want to say thanks again. People can follow you um, on Twitter. Your handle is? Movie Mance. So it's Movie, the last name is Mance with a TZ. So just follow me on Twitter at Movie Mance. I tweet like crazy. Mm-hmm. And most of my tweets are about Star Trek and the Beatles, my other true love. <laughs> right. <laughs> there was never an official crossover between the two, but we'll f- maybe on the new show. Maybe on the new maybe? show. You never know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, and, and also uh, you'll see Scott on Access Hollywood and on the web and um, yeah, follow him. Uh, and you know, we didn't get to your time uh, because, uh, as I mentioned with the Kelvin stuff, you've been uh, very involved with interviewing those guys time and time again. So I want, I want your, um, your. But let's let's wait for uh, the announcement of the fourth film before we get to that one. How does yes, that sound? Absolutely, that sounds great. Great, and Jordan. So, uh, I, I thank you so much for having me, and and it's always great to see you around, and 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 now to finally talk with you about. About you know the, the the one thing that really has just changed and influenced and 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 and, and saved my life in so many ways. <laughs> uh, I I you know thank you so much again for having me on right. the show. I'm it's glad we had you on. I would can say that this has uh, been an accomplishment. Accomplished. And I <laughs> I am going to uh, should I beam you? I should warp you out of here, right? Now what's the number for warp? I always confuse. <laughs> uh, we don't have a warp on here. We have Captain Kirk will just tell you to go to warp, and that's how we'll leave it. So, Scott, thanks again. We'll see you soon. Ahead, warp factor one. Steady she goes. (laughs) All right, we'll talk to you soon, Scott. So long. Bye bye. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.